Welcome to the weekly service message from the Crossbridge Church. Look for us on the web at www.crossbridgeny.org. Join us now as Pastor Nate Young delivers this week's message. Uh, Before we get into our sermon, uh, just a few things uh, that I want to mention. Uh, First, um, whatever your opinion is about uh, Halloween, which is tomorrow, um, our family has taken the opportunity to try to redeem a little bit of what is probably at this point an unredeemable holiday, um, other than the, the free candy that we get from that particular occasion. Um, but t- at times in the past, what we have done is as kids come to our house, um, Miss Jenny has provided some tracks that present the gospel that we place in a bag with candy to give to kids um, as they come to the door. Oftentimes, interacting with our neighbors seems a little bit harder than it should be, um, but this is an opportunity to put some candy and uh, a gospel track in their hands. So those are at the uh, door or they're on the table as you leave out the door. Avail yourself to as many of those as you would like uh, and at least use this opportunity to try to share the gospel with maybe some of the, the kids in your neighborhood. Um, the second thing I want to address this morning is, yes, I do have a black eye. I am aware that I have a black eye on the left side, and no, no one in my family gave it to me, all right? So I think it's important as we're about to preach, uh, I'm about to preach a sermon on marriage that you know that my wife and I have not been in a fist fight this week. Uh, instead, I got this from a martial arts class that my oldest son and I have been uh, taking, so just so you're aware of that. The other thing that I think that you're probably very aware of is the fact that the world has marriage under fire. That we live in a day and age where marriage is constantly under attack. And in fact, the world around us wants to completely redefine marriage as something that the Bible says that it is not. And so it's very important for us as believers to be reconfirmed and re-reminded of what the Bible actually says about marriage. As a pastor, there are often times that I am preaching sermons to you about topics that I never thought that I would have to preach about. And this is actually one of those. But what I was reminded of as I worked through the book of Malachi to prepare your sermon today is that old problems are often always made new. That the problems that they were dealing with in Malachi's day are very similar to the problems that we're dealing with today. In that, marriage in Malachi's day was not treasured just like oftentimes it isn't today. And we as believers must take a stand and say that marriage matters that marriage is a very important teaching in the Scriptures. You see, here's your your thesis today before we go to the Scriptures. If you haven't opened your Bibles yet, go ahead and open your Bibles up to the book of Malachi. We're going to be looking at Malachi chapter 2, verses 10 through 16. Let me share with you the thesis for today's sermon as you open your Bibles if you haven't already. Malachi chapter 2, verses 10 through 16. Here's, here's what I think is the main idea, the main things that are being communicated from the sermon today, from this passage. 
The world today wants to destroy the sacred institution of marriage. But the covenant of marriage matters to God because it is part of his plan to reflect his glory from the very beginning of time. So with that in mind, I want to invite you to stand with me one more time for a reading from the Word of God, Malachi chapter 2, verses 10 through 16. Malachi chapter 2, starting in verse 10. Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? Judah has been faithless, and abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem, for Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob any descendants of the man who does this, who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. And this second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altars with tears, with weeping and groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why does he not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. This is a reading from the word of God. You may be seated. One of the things that we're going to immediately see in these first three verses of this particular passage is that God cares about marriage, that God cares about marriage. One of the first reasons that God cares about marriage is because the marriage covenant is a reflection of God's covenant with his people. God is reintroduced in chapter 2, verse 10, as being the father of the nation of Israel. Now, some would try to make this passage say that this means that all people are going to heaven because God is the father of everyone. But this is covenantal language. This is language to indicate that God is the father of his spiritual children. Not that everyone's going to go to heaven, but that God is the father the spiritual father of those who are his spiritual children. The Bible is full of this idea of God as the father and creator of his people. We've, been, we've heard this already in chapter 1, verse 6, as God as the father and creator. It echoes of Malachi chapter 1, verse 6. But there's just a plethora of passages in the Old and New Testament that explain to us that God is our father. But, but here's, here's the deal. Since God is our spiritual father, we should expect his fatherly discipline 
when we live contrary to his word. Let me say that to you again. Since God is our heavenly father, we should expect his fatherly discipline when we live contrary to his word. And here in this particular passage, God has moved to discipline his people. And really, we've seen that already multiple times in the book of Malachi. And here's what he says to his people. If God is your spiritual father, or since God is your spiritual father, and he's the one who created you, then why are you being faithless to each other? And what does he mean by why have you been faithless to one another? He's talking specifically about betraying the covenant of marriage. Since God has made a covenant with you as his people, and marriage is a reflection of that covenant, why have you betrayed the covenant that was initiated by God? You see, faithlessness to each other profanes the covenant of God. Listen to these words. When we profane the covenant of marriage, we secularize what God intended to be holy. In this particular case, God is talking about a specific way in which they have violated the covenant that they have with God and the covenant of marriage. It, it echoes back to Nehemiah 13, 15 through 31. This similar passage in Nehemiah, he confronts the nation of Israel in a similar way that Malachi is confronting them here. He says that they have profaned the temple of God by offering sacrifices while not worshiping God with their lives. And the way that they have profaned the temple is by marrying women they were not supposed to marry. We'll say more on that in a moment. But he gets to that in in verse 11. Look at verse 11 with me. Judah has been faithless, and an abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the, the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves. And how did they do that? They have married the daughter of a foreign god. Now, to be clear in terms of what he's talking about here, in verse 11, when he says abomination, we only need to go back to Deuteronomy to be reminded that abomination means idolatry. And idolatry is the worship of anything above God himself. And idolatry is sin, which is rebellion and treachery against God. And in doing so, it says that the people of Israel have profaned the sanctuary. Now, get the picture that's being painted here. This word sanctuary could literally be translated the holiness of God. Now, there's potentially two ways that this could be taken. Either they have profaned the actual temple itself, or they have profaned the people that God has set apart for himself to live holy under the covenant. And even though they've been set apart to be a holy people, they have brought into this holy relationship pagan gods. And what he's telling us is that God's plan and their practice are miles apart. 
This phrase profaned and this idea of foreign god are linked together to show us that they have committed idolatry with pagan gods. Unless we forget the significance of what happens here, we're actually hearing for the second time or for the second time something that God loves. Remember, God communicated to his people that he loves him and now, or that he loves them, and now God tells them that he loves his sanctuary, his holiness. And the very thing that God had set apart for himself, the very thing that God has loved, they have now tainted with some sort of unbiblical marriage. This daughter of a foreign god, again, there's potentially two options of what they had done. Again, this picture could be painted of this holiness, this holy people that God had set apart from himself. And instead of being united in a covenant relationship with God, the people of God have divorced themselves from God to marriage with a pagan god. Or, more likely, and this is the position that I would take, that these people of Israel have married a woman who worships pagan God. But here's the point, either way, on what you take this. Marriage to a pagan or marriage to a pagan deity would ultimately end in idolatry. That's the point. Again, what's being communicated, especially in verse 12 of this particular passage, is that worship encompasses all of life, including marriage. That the Lord takes this idea of him being worshipped, in particular in marriage, very seriously. And in verse 12, he begins to pronounce a message of doom. He says in verse 12, may the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob, any descendants of the man who does this. That anyone who would marry a pagan worshiper and his descendants, any and all, should be cut off from a specific place. He says they should be cut off from the tents of Jacob. Now, let's be reminded what do the tents of Jacob mean? The tents of Jacob are meant to symbolize the care and protection of God. It's meant to symbolize a man, Jacob, who doesn't deserve God's blessing, and he needs divine grace, and God grants it to him. But he continues on to verse 12, in verse 12, in terms of who this man is and what he has done. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob any descendants of the man who does this, who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. In this portion of the verse, the Lord is extending and expanding their understanding of what it means to worship the Lord. This phrase links back to the previous verses where Malachi discusses the displeasure that the Lord has with the unworthy sacrifices the Israelites were offering at the temple. And now he includes the proper worship of God in marriage. You see, one who wants to worship the Lord, one who considers themselves a follower of the Lord, must consider their whole life as an act of worship to God. 
And in this particular passage, the Lord is focusing on marriage. And again, marriage is no doubt under fire in today's day and age. It's become a commonplace for marriage to be ridiculed and spouses to be made fun of. Men joke about how bossing and demanding and emotional their wives are, and, and women joke about how dumb and insensitive their husbands are. Marriage is looked at as an outdated institution or something that drags us down from getting to do what we want. But we must see marriage as the holy institution ordained by God to accomplish his purposes and a gift from him that enables us to worship him in a way that we could never do on our own. We must hold onto our marriages and we must hold them high in our hearts and minds and in practice. Let me encourage you to view marriage in a similar way to how you view prayer. Prayer is one of the clearest ways that we get to worship God. When we go to God in prayer, we're, we're admitting that we're a needy people and we can't live this life without God. We humble ourselves before him and ask for his mercy and grace. No serious of follower of God would ever make fun of or denigrate prayer. And let me say that the same should be true of marriage. We must treat it with the honor and reverence that God intended. Unless we start to think that marriage is an outdated institution that was primarily meant to serve those in the Old Testament, let's see what the New Testament says about marriage. In Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 through 23, Paul tells us that marriage was created in the beginning of time by God with a specific purpose. In this passage, in Ephesians 5, Paul quotes Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. He does this to let us know that God had an ultimate purpose when he created Adam and formed Eve from his rib bone. His purpose all along was to ultimately reveal Christ. In the marriage relationship, each person represents a character in the saving plan of God. The husband represents Jesus Christ, and he represents his love for his bride and, or his bride, the church. Paul goes on to describe the love of Christ in that this love was so great that Christ died to save us from our sin. He gave his own life for us. And he did this, though, with a specific purpose. It says, so that we could be washed with the water of the word. Meaning, not just so that we could have our sins forgiven, but so that we could be made disciples of Christ. That the husband in the marriage relationship are to see to it in love that their wives are growing as disciples of Jesus Christ. That, that's our responsibility. 
But husbands, this begs the question, are you worshiping God by loving your wife and see, to see that she is growing as a disciple of Christ? Or do your attitudes, words, and act, actions hinder her walk with the Lord? Are you helping to foster her walk with Christ? Or are you standing in the way? Why is in Ephesians chapter 5, Paul tells us that the character that you represent is the church. And just as the church, out of love for God, submits to its role to God's plan, so is the wife to submit to their role in the marriage. And we know from Genesis that the husband was given specific commands for God to make his, or from God, to make his glory known throughout the whole world. And he was to do this specifically by having dominion over the world, subduing it, and filling it. But the Bible tells us, this, tells us that this is a task that he could not do without a helper suitable for him. In marriage, God has ordained that the husband and the wife work together to accomplish God's plan. The husband is to lead and provide, and the wife is to help and nurture. So I would pose a similar question to you, wives. Are you helping and nurturing your husband and your family, or are you pursuing your own goals to the detriment of God's plan for you and your marriage? You see, marriage matters to God. In part, because God's glory and his plan are revealed in marriage. But not only does God care about marriage, and because God cares about marriage, God cares about divorce. You see, in verses 13 through 16, one of the first things that we see is that sin in one area of our life will hurt our worship in other areas. What we see in this passage is that the Lord's altar is now covered in tears, Malachi says it. And I think there are actually two ways that this could also be understood. I'm, I'm going to lean to the second, but think about this for a moment. First, in a sense, these tears could be crocodile tears cried by the husbands who have divorced their wives. These men cry, not because of their sin against the holy God, but because the Lord will no longer accept their offering. These are tears of hypocrisy. The second option, and the one I favor, is that these tears are the tears of the wives who have been wronged by their husbands. They cry to the Lord for help. And in an effort to cover their sins, in an effort to cover the tears of their wives... These husbands continue to offer hypocritical sacrifices, hoping that the blood of the sacrifice will cover their sins and the tears of their wives before God. And because these, these husbands haven't made right with their wives, the Lord will not accept their offering. 
And when the husbands are confronted with the reality of the situation, instead of falling on their faces before God and confessing their sins and turning away from it, they question God. And they ask, well, why doesn't he accept my worship? Why doesn't he accept my sacrifice? When they know good and well, why not? And the reason God is not accepting the offering is because they have divorced the wife they married when they were young. And this passage seems to indicate that they have done this to either upgrade to a newer model or to marry a woman that would advance their financial situation. When we think about what's happening here, we should feel the wrongness of this. Before we rush to judgment of these husbands, we must stop and consider how we might have done this. Because if we are honest, we will all admit we have done this. We might have a fight with our spouse, sometimes on Saturday night or even on the way to church. And then as we get here to church, we, we sit here in our seats, and we sing, and we pray, and we try to act like nothing's wrong. I'll just confess to you for a minute, and, and maybe you're holier than me. Uh, it's probably true. Uh, Kim and I, we're not, we're not yellers. Um, if you don't know, my wife's name is Kim. Um, she's the love of my life. I love her. We've been married for 22 years. Best decision I've ever made in my entire life. Married way above my pay grade. All of the things that uh, you would want to say, I could say. But even though I love her, sometimes we fight. And that might be shocking to you to know that your pastor actually argues with his wife sometimes, and we disagree about things. But we're not, we're not yellers, we're silent treatment people. We, we won't talk to each other, or we'll, we'll say basic things that we have to say to each other, but it has no significance to it. And if we're not careful, what will happen is a day will go by, and then two days will go by, and then three days will go by, and then a week will go by. And we've not resolved the conflict that happens between us. We don't talk about what happened. And there's this uneasiness that permeates everything we do. And I, I would try to put on worship music or listen to a sermon and it feels strange and, and I try to pray and my prayers feel like they don't get past the ceiling this is because all of life as a Christian should be lived as an act of worship and if I have sin and a broken relationship in one area of my life, it is going to affect 
my worship to God in all areas. We cannot expect that if we are living in a sinful way in one area, that we will be able to, with a clear and right conscience, expect the blessing of God as we attempt to worship Him in another area. You see, because as verse 15 reminds us, marriage between one man and one woman for life is God's plan. This is definitely the point that I never thought I would have to write. That we live in a day and age now where I have to filter every television show that comes on before my children because now almost every, even children's television show, one kid has two moms and two dads. Friends, this is not the standard that the Bible holds for those who follow him. And we have to be on guard, not just for our hearts and minds, but for the hearts and minds of our little ones. Because there is no marriage, you understand this? There is no marriage between two women and two men. That is not marriage. You can call it a civil union if you so desire. But marriage, according to God, who instituted marriage, is between a man and a woman for life. In this particular passage, Malachi takes us back to creation. He takes us back to God's creation as, uh, of woman as part of his plan in Genesis 2. And God is reminding us of how powerful he actually is. When he says, a portion of the Spirit in their union, what he's telling us is that his Spirit is powerful enough that he could have done anything. He could have actually made man self-replicating. And I am so glad that he didn't do that. Because I love you men, but I'm glad that there's some women in the world. Amen? Because if we were just self-replicating, we would, I don't even, anyways, I'll leave that one alone. But I'm, I am so thankful that God's plan for marriage, or God's plan for the proliferation of the human race includes both a man and a woman. And even though God could have done anything he chose, he didn't. He didn't do anything different than the creation of man and woman and then bring them together joined in the covenant of marriage. That is God's plan. And think about it like this. Marriage was God's perfect plan for humanity before sin had entered into the world. There, there are two perfect relationships that existed before sin came in and tainted those relationships. The relationship between humanity and God and between a man and a woman in marriage. Those were perfectly created by God. And marriage in God's perfect plan had a goal. 
This passage tells us that his goal was to produce godly offspring. That a man and a woman united together in the covenant of marriage, in covenant relationship with God, is meant to produce other covenant people who keep the covenant moving forward with their family, and so on and so on. And brothers and sisters, this would actually make our hearts sing. That being married is a great thing in that, was, in that it was created by God to be a covenant-producing covenant. And that my marriage isn't just about me and my happiness, but it has a, great, a greater purpose than that. It has the purpose that God would be glorified in a special way that I could never do by myself. That this, the greatest of human relationships and, and covenants that brings so much joy and pleasure as part of God's plan for us to worship him and make disciples. I, I don't know if you've ever actually considered your marriage relationship in this light before, but your marriage is intended by God for your good as his disciple and God's glory. And when I see it through that lens, then the next phase in this passage, or this next phrase in this passage, must be a natural response. I must protect marriage. And you understand not just my marriage, but yours as well. That I must hold marriage in such a high honor and uphold it as a joyful act of worship. I must guard my heart and mind along with my, my life and encourage you to do the same thing so that we don't fall into any thinking or behavior that would lead me away from honoring my marriage. We must together work to protect the holy institution of marriage. And I'm, I'm going to say so much more on this. In just a moment. But I, I want you to look at verse 16. Malachi chapter 2, verse 16. It says, For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord. Now, remember we already described earlier in the passage Earlier in the book of Malachi, there's a comparison between love and hate. Love is the covenantal choosing of Jacob, and hate is the covenantal rejecting of Esau. And in this particular passage, God comes back to this type of language to talk now about the covenant of marriage. And when he says, the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, what he's clearly communicating, and how this phrase could literally be translated in the Hebrew, is that I, God, hate divorce. But, but let me be clear here. He's talking about specific, a specific kind of divorce. This specific kind of divorce that he's talking about here is when someone divorces his wife for no other reason other than to take another wife. Because there, there are times in the scriptures in which God 
actually allows for divorce to happen. Even in the Old Testament, in Ezra chapter 9 and 10, God actually tells his people to divorce their pagan wives. In the New Testament, God says that there are two times that divorce is actually allowed. It's acceptable when one spouse has committed adultery or if someone is married to an unbeliever and the unbeliever wants to leave the marriage. But let me just say to you, divorce should never be our first response. Divorce damages the family. It actually damages the larger society and potentially even damages the testimony of God. If we remember what marriage was meant to represent, it would show a separation between Christ and his church. But God's hatred of divorce should be one of the number one reasons why we would protect our marriages. Look at how he paints this picture here in this passage. He says, the one who divorces the wife of their youth just for their physical or financial gain, this text uses this phrase, covers his garment with violence. I want you to see the the picture that's being painted here. God views this type of divorce as violence against the victim. The act of divorce, see this picture, the act of divorce has caused the altar to be covered in tears by the wives who were being divorced, and now the husbands are covered in violence. Love and devotion has now been replaced with social, emotional, and even physical violence in some cases. This is part of the reason why God hates divorce, because of the destruction that it does. But again, let's fast forward to the New Testament to see what teaching we might find there on the subject of divorce. And in fact, what we find is that Jesus himself in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 10, teaches on divorce. And in fact, he references the Old Testament when he talks about divorce in Mark, chapter 10, verses 2 through 12. Let me encourage you to turn there and let me read these words to you. Mark, chapter 10, starting in verse 2, says this. And Pharisees came up in order to test him, that's Jesus, And they ask, is it unlawful for a man to divorce his wife? Verse 3 gives Jesus' answer. He says, what did Moses command you? They say Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh, so they are no longer two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter, and he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. In the Old Testament and in the New Testament, 
divorce is a serious matter to God, and it should be a serious matter to us. And in a day and age where almost half of all marriages end in divorce, there must go out a call to the church of God to reclaim marriage and to restore it to the sanctity that God has intended. Divorce is a word and an idea that should never be casually thrown around in your relationship and almost never be an option that is on the table. But if you remember from the first several sermons of this particular passage, we want to not just think about what this passage was saying to the Israelites as Malachi wrote it, but to actually make the connection to our life. We've been doing this through the passage of 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 that says that all Scripture, which includes the Old Testament, is profitable for doctrine, for correction, for reproof, and for instruction in righteousness. So let's just take a moment to discuss the major doctrines of this passage. What are the major truths taught in this particular passage? The two that I think are the most exposed here are the covenant of marriage and then the, the doctrine of idolatry. The covenant of marriage and teaching on idolatry. When we see the doctrines that are the teachings that are laid out in the scriptures, we must take those teachings and sort our own beliefs. That's what reproof means. Where have I thought incorrectly that has now been confronted by the scriptures and needs to be corrected? So let me pose it to you this way. When you think about marriage, How do you hold it in your heart and mind? What thoughts do you have about marriage? Does it hold a high place? Or is it just something that you don't really desire? Or maybe at this point in your life, it's something that you're stuck with. And if if that is you, If marriage does not hold a high place in your heart and mind, let me just encourage you to see God's purpose in your marriage. To be renewed and refreshed in what God is up to in your marriage relationship. God desires for you to worship him and for you to be made into a better disciple through your marriage. If you are married, God has provided the best accountability and discipleship partner you could ever have. He's brought them into the home with you. And be emboldened, be encouraged that God has declared marriage good. And it's part of his design to accomplish his will in your life. Now, what about idolatry? Remember, I defined idolatry earlier as anything that we worship above God. And let me just say to you, marriage or our happiness in marriage 
can become an idol that we worship. And can I just say to you, marriage isn't primarily about making you happy. Marriage is designed to make you holy. And you will be happy when you pursue, pursue God's design for your marriage because you'll be happy and content in God, not your marriage. When we are content in God, any joy that we get from marriage is just icing on the cake. But, but let me just encourage you, do not expect marriage to give you something it can't. Marriage alone cannot make you happy and whole. But a marriage that seeks to honor God, that seeks to honor God at its center will produce a life of joy and happiness. Not marriage on its own. Let me just pose to you again, doctrine, correction, reproof. Correction has to do with thinking. Reproof has to do with behavior. So the question we must ask then, where does my behavior need improved? And here's the question that I want to pose to you inside of that. Am I living in sin in one area of my life while expecting God's blessing elsewhere? You see, we cannot expect God to accept our worship if we're actively living in sin. God expects that if we are aware of sin in our lives, that we will deal with that particular issue as part of the process of, of worshiping Him. So we must repent and turn away from any sin that we might be harboring in an effort to worship God with our lives. And let me just encourage you, if, if you're here today and you do not know Jesus Christ as your Savior, you are actively living in sin and rebellion against God. And the way that you resolve that is by recognizing that you are a sinner, that we by our very nature are sinners and have committed sin up until this point. And that sin bears with it a debt. And that debt will never be able to be paid by you and I. We can never do enough good deeds to pay for our sin. Only one person has done what is necessary to pay for our sin debt. And that person is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ's perfect life and perfect death on the cross made it possible for us to repent, which means turn away from our sin and turn to God. And he is the only way that we can be forgiven of our sins. If you are here today and you do not know the forgiving grace of, of God, you can pray and ask him to forgive you today. And the Bible says that he will. The second question that I want to ask you about behavior is this. How am I seeking to worship God in my marriage? Or maybe a better question is, are you seeking to worship God in your marriage? 
You see, especially for us men, us husbands, we have been given the specific task of leading in our families and leading them to godliness. It is our primary responsibility to ensure that our family is moving continually in the direction of godliness. But oftentimes it's very tempting for us to use our marriage as a way in which we would be worshipped and served, not the other way around. And so I, I'm going to give you just a few things in a moment, but, but I want you to seriously consider whether or not you're seeking to worship God in your marriage. And here's the final question, and I think it ties right into that one. Are you on guard for your marriage? Are you seeking to protect your marriage? And this is the portion of the sermon in which I sound like a grumpy old man, okay? Do you know one of the main ways that you can be on guard for your marriage? Don't watch or listen to things that tear down marriage. Turn the TV, podcast, streaming service off when they make a joke or talk about marriage in a different light than God does. If you entertain that thinking and you allow it into your heart and mind often enough, pretty soon you will start to believe and behave in the same way. And one of the greatest things that we can do to protect our marriage is to resist and keep out any worldly thinking about marriage. And in the process, remember what marriage is made to represent. To malign and joke about marriage is to malign and joke about the gospel of Jesus Christ. The final question that we're going to ask today has to do with the instruction and righteousness portion. What is this passage actually calling me to do? And I, I'm going to give you two things that I think are practical that, that you can do, that you can start doing today that will help you elevate and protect marriage. So I'd, I don't know why this is, but for some reason in my marriage, and, and maybe it's true for you, I have found it difficult to consistently pray and read the scriptures with my wife. I don't know why. I mean, I do know why. It's because the world wants to attack marriage and the devil wants me to not grow my marriage. But what I want to encourage you, in particular today, husbands, is to start reading and praying at least one psalm together as a couple every day this week. I want to challenge you from today till next Sunday to make it a priority to read one psalm and pray that psalm with your spouse, with your wife, that you would lead in this. Uh, if you were attending on Wednesday night, we've been walking through a book on praying the Bible that teaches us how to actually pray the psalms. And so if you've been attending Wednesday night, you already have a leg up on how to do that. But men, I want to encourage you to take up this challenge that this week you would make it a priority. You would set a time with your wife that you would read a psalm and you would pray together as a couple every day this next week. And as you think about the ebb and flow, the normal 
interaction of your marriage, that this is both for husbands and wives, that you would consider how the normal flow of your marriage happens. And if you begin to identify any idolatry in your life, that you would repent and turn away from it. That if you've accepted any unbiblical teaching about marriage, that you would repent and turn away from that as well. Now, this, this whole particular sermon has seemed to have primarily been to husbands and wives. But, but young people, kids, teenagers, I want you to look up here for a second. When we teach about marriage, it sounds like we're talking to mommies and daddies. But the scriptures are speaking to you as well. Because the world is after your heart. The world is after your mind. And if the world can get you to engage in an unbiblical relationship, it will capture your entire life. And the scriptures are clear in terms of the priority of marriage that we should have. That you as a young woman, a young girl, or a young boy, a young man, should already be thinking about what it means if one day God allows you to be married and you would have kids of your own, that what it would look like for you to be a husband or wife that honors God in their marriage. And that, that you need to know and not be confused about what the world wants you to believe about marriage. That marriage is one man and one woman for life. That is God's will for marriage. And who you seek to marry matters. That if you are here today as a young person and you know Jesus Christ as your Savior, that you should seek to marry another Christian so that the two of you have children that you train to be Christians as well. Does that make sense to you, kids? I know that this recently, there's been a celebration of homosexuality. It's last month was Gay Pride Month, right? You don't even know. I thought you... (laughs) I don't really know either. And I know a lot of this is celebrated in schools. That, That you kids who go to public schools hear about this. That is not God's plan for his people. That a child cannot have two mommies and two daddies. That that does not honor the Lord. What honors the Lord is a man and a woman who are committed to each other before the Lord for their entire life. And I I don't want you to be confused about this because the Bible is very clear. And the world is going to want to steer you all kinds of different directions in the way in which you should think about relationships, in the way that you should think about women and men. But the Bible is clear in terms of these things. It's very clear. Do not be confused and do not listen to the world. The creator of the universe who set all of this in play has told us in his word what is right and what is good. And parents, we need to continue to reinforce this with our kids. 
We need to make sure that what they're being told in the world is sorted through what the scriptures actually say. We don't teach them to hate people who live these different lifestyles, but we do teach them that what they do, what they're doing is wrong, and they will be held accountable for what they're doing. That everyone will have to stand before God and give an account for the way that they live their life. And the Bible is clear. Those who choose to live differently than God has said in his word will not be in the kingdom of God. So let, let me pray and let me ask the Lord to help us protect our marriages, that God would help protect our, our children from understanding unbiblical things about marriage, and that we would be emboldened to live marriages that honor the Lord. Will you join me in prayer? Lord, we are so thankful that you have made it so abundantly clear what marriage is, what it's supposed to be, and how we can honor you inside of it. Lord, we feel this weight of the world around us who wants to teach us that marriage is something different than what your word has said. But Lord, help us to hold marriage in such high esteem that we would see it as a holy institution meant to bring you glory. Lord, I ask now on behalf of the men of our church, of the husbands who are under the sound of my voice and, and the young men who may be husbands one day, that you would, teach, that you would help us, Lord, to fight for our relationships, to fight for our marriages. Lord, help us to lead well in our homes. Help us to see your perfect plan that we would love our wives in such a way that they would be made in disciples. Lord, I pray on behalf of the women, the wives of our church. Lord, protect them as well. We know that the devil is like a prowling lion. He's been after women from the very creation of time to deceive them away from from what you have called good and right. Lord, protect them and help them to honor you in marriage and in the institution of marriage. And Lord, help us as a church. Help us to look out for one another, to care for one another. And, and if anyone were to start to navigate away from your word, that we would call them back to repentance and restoration that we would join arm in arm to stand firm on the truths of your word, in particular about what your word says about marriage. Lord, may you be honored in us today as we prepare to move from being the church gathered to the church scattered, that the gospel would be prevalent in every area of our lives, including in our marriages. Be honored in us. Be honored in our marriages today. We ask this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you for joining us. Please feel free to share this message, but remember, don't charge for it or change it. The Lord's message should be free and for everyone.